0: Hi again, everybody. Um, So I wanna talk about a few things tonight that I've been speaking about uh, for the last number of months and that I assume I'll keep speaking about because they're alive and they're current uh, uh, that we're all working with, dealing with, uh, learning about, discovering and so when I when I started thinking about the talk, I thought of all these questions I wanted to give to you, and you can write them down if you want, or just hear them. And then I'm going to speak to them. And one of the things I said I wrote down was, "How do you keep waking up during the time of COVID-19? How do you keep waking up now during this pandemic that, uh, if you've noticed, is not over?" even though the government is saying, oh, everything, go back to work and we're going to get back to normal, it keeps being said. And then if you'll notice, that's not what's happening. It keeps spiking now again as we keep relaxing the, the um, guidelines to support our health and the health of others. And so how do you keep waking up during this time? And then, of course, the second question is... Um, how do you keep waking up while the United States of America and really the world is waking up to, this, to the pandemic of racism that's been going on in this country for the last 400 years? How do you keep waking up? How can you keep uh, discovering, investigating, learning about and realizing what's true and what it means as part of practice As what it means as part of our Buddhist practice, both individually and collectively. And in terms of COVID-19, you know, the question is, are you trusting your intuition about it, or are you trusting your preferences about what you want to be happening, right? What you want to be happening, which is, and I believe this is true for almost all of us, we want it to be gone or over or done so we can like live our normal lives, but that's not the case. And so from my experience, what, the way I understand uh, COVID-19 is it's a certain kind of retreat that we're on, and it's a home retreat, and it's about practicing 24-7 at home. And in the old days, which aren't that long ago, you know, a few months ago, in, in March, I was teaching a retreat a month long, the second month of the two-month retreat at Spirit Rock. And, um, you know, that was where retreats happened at Spirit Rock. Well, now the retreat is happening right where you're sitting. And because we have the similar kind of limitations of possibilities that really support retreat, which is there's not a lot to do. There's not a lot of places to go. There's not a lot of um, diversion from our own consciousness, which is what we want to pay attention to when we're practicing. And so are you using your trusting your intuition with COVID-19, or are you trusting your preferences or what you want? And how are you using your intelligence to fully support? the health of yourself and everybody else, of everybody else. And of course, how are you waking up during this period of COVID-19 to the uh, pandemic of racism? And uh, I can't see you, but I would love to be able to see, oh, how many people here are white? How many people here are black? How many people here might maybe indigenous? How many people uh, put themselves in the people of color uh, category? Because that tells us something about the what's in the room and who we are, how to practice together. And um, and so, if you're white, I hope you're learning about whiteness, which white people have uh, pretended they didn't know about for many, many years, for most of us. And I pass for white. And uh, although personally, I don't consider myself white, but I know that I pass for it and I have the privilege. I know how to use the privilege of what it means to be white. And just for your clarity, when I say I'm not white, Uh, I'm Jewish by birth and I've come from a people who've dealt with, you know, prejudice, bias, hatred off and on for 5,000 years, something like that. And and so even growing up in America, which is relatively good in terms of its relationship to Jewish people, you never know when shit is gonna happen because Different countries have been safe. And then at some point, Jews had to leave at some point. And so, um, and, and yet, I know that in this country, the key to racism, in addition to the genocide that was perpetrated on indigenous people here, about native people here, is also the, the racism that was was came here in as early as 1619 and has continued ever since. And so how how are we as white people or people who are privileged to be white, have that privilege, how are you working with your whiteness as part of practice? And uh, what is it that might interest you about investigating race and whiteness? And of course, if you're a person of color, your own investigation is about your situation here in this country with prejudice, with racism, and how you're dealing with the current changes that seem to be happening that I hope very much are hoping for the better. And I'll say some more about that a little later. And so the the questions I'm bringing up is really about practice and what excites you about practicing now with our current real live reality of both the pandemic of, of uh, COVID-19 and this 400 years of racism uh, being brought forward because of the murders of so many people for so long, and especially the murder of George Floyd, which everybody got to watch on their, you know, whatever their device might be, people got to see it live. And then the other piece that I'll add, which is a very Eugene piece, which is how to, it's not just Eugene, but it's part of practice. How do you practice an embodied awareness right now, even while I'm talking and you're listening? Can you stay aware of your body, the liveness that's hearing me, just as I want to stay aware of the liveness that is speaking right here? Because it's all alive here. And this is part of the beauty of the Dharma is it points at the life and the freedom that's possible in this aliveness for each one of us and for all of us together. And it's to me, it's why practice is so important because of the magic and the beauty of being alive which does not last forever. And I know all of you know that, everybody knows bodies don't live forever, but most of us don't live as if we know it, as if that's true. When shit happens, then we start to live it. Meaning when health, gets compromised or if something bad happens or somebody we love gets ill and is about to die, then then all of a sudden what's important becomes very clear to us, very foreground for us. And I'm suggesting now just being aware of the magic of being alive can also bring us this this, um, heightened awareness of what's of value. What do we value? What's really important? And of course, when I talk about practice, practice is always right here, right now. It's not later, it's not tomorrow because we don't know if there'll be a tomorrow, really. We pretend there's gonna be a tomorrow and there may be, usually there is, but who knows, right? Because any of us could die at any, any moment. That just happens like that sometimes and somebody's gone. And that somebody someday may be me. And actually, it will be me. I want to reassure you, I'm not going to live forever. That's just part of the deal of being alive. That this aliveness is magical and beautiful, difficult at times, but also kind of uh, uh, wild, just that we're a living consciousness in a body, with a body, and then the body dies at some point. And so the, where you are is really important right now. This moment is important. Kabir would always say, wherever you are is the entry point. Wherever you are is the entry point. And for me, that means the entry point to awakening is right here, right now. This is the doorway. This moment and each moment is a doorway. And the import of practice is to learn to embody our humanity, our full humanity, the the multiplicity of realities that is sitting here. And of course, I'm pointing at each of you that is sitting in each of your seats, right? The intelligence and the inquisitiveness or the curiosity or the discernment that might be here, or the common sense that might be here, or the heartfulness that could be here, or the passion for discovering the truth, the Dharma, right? Dharma is often translated as truth. And we want to discover the truth, the reality of what's here, both in ourselves and in everyone else, and in the world, in reality itself. And of course, I'm going to say a lot of different things that you may agree with or disagree with or like or not like. Please send me an email, you know, and and let's, uh, you know, send it to live stream at spiritrock.org. Don't wait to do it because it takes a while before they get it and then they give it to me because I want to be able to respond to you and what you think, feel, what you hear, what you like, what you don't like. So, the four responding to 400 years of racism, of bias or prejudice or lies or distorted truth, and the total absurdity of whiteness, of of creating race, which is a made up fiction, actually, that originally there was there was one race, it was called the human race, and we're all part of it. And then this differentiation by color, was really an economic device it was all about money so how can we make more money slaves if we have slaves we make money If we own slaves then they work for us and they work for free because we own them that's it can you imagine being owned any of you right being owned by someone who tells you what to do or kills you if you don't do it And of course the the edge of this has really got heightened because of all the black people who've been murdered by the police. Um, That's happened in, you know, really for not just for the last few months, although really it's the last few months that heightened everybody's awareness of this with the video of George Floyd. But, but even in the last few months, uh, um, Ahmad Aubrey was chased down and killed in uh, Georgia, right, in February. And then Brianna Taylor was in her bed and the police broke into her house and shot her, uh, you know, sprayed her with bullets in uh, Louisville, Kentucky in March. And then Tony McDale was gunned down by police in Tallahassee, Florida in May right and this is just and this has been happening f- for a long time you know last 100 years the police have been killing especially black people and i i want to be careful i'm not saying only black people are getting killed by police recently transvestites have been getting or trans excuse me trans people have gotten killed and it's just you know the bias against who someone is is so Uh, ignorant that I I just can't even believe it sometimes but it's true and that bias that prejudice that ignorance acts in murderous ways which is what happened to George Floyd right who uh the policeman just for eight minutes had his his knee on George's neck which I imagine you've all seen by now and if you haven't please see it it's difficult to see, it's it's heartbreaking, it's infuriating at the same time because it's crazy that that the police person would do that even. But it's part of the ignorance of that culture of the police body culture to do that. <clears throat> And so how do we wake up with this reality that we're dealing with that's alive? How do we not just act out on our feelings or our rage or our heartbreak or our um, uh, lack of hope that may arise uh, because of all the things, all the shit that happens is really I'm censoring myself. I realize I don't have to censor myself like that, right? But how do we respond to reality? What does practice mean? If we really respond to practice. And um, uh, when I think of what practice is, I think of it as a dynamic practice. It's not just a passive practice to meditate or be or or to wake up because that's what practice is about it's not just about meditating it's about waking up and discovering the Dharma discovering what's true and when I think about um, uh, practice and responding to reality in a real way in a dharmic way excuse me it takes both sitting and acting sitting and responding. It's a dynamic practice and it takes courage. And I loved what um, Winston Churchill, who was a British prime minister, I believe in the last century and during World War II. And he said, courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. Courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. But Winston was, had some real wisdom. He said, courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. And courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. And both of those are part of the dynamic of practice of what it means to have a courageous heart, is to stand up, to speak, to act but also to sit down and listen and be aware and see what's here and see where are we acting from? Are we acting from reactivity? Are we acting from a certain kind of re- receptivity that bring, that lets our intelligence function, that lets our, our, our creativity function, that lets our strength function, that lets our uh, fierceness function? in a way that's true, that's in harmony with the Dharma, with that is kind, but is not passive. <clears throat> and please remember to, um, again, I'm saying a lot of things, send me your emails at livestream at spiritrock.org so I can respond to any thoughts you have, any questions about what I'm saying right now. And right now I'm just interested in the courageous heart, which means that we're not afraid to open to reality. We're not afraid to open to the world. We're not afraid to open to what's true or to what's here, both internally and externally, And of course, mindfulness in the suttas, in the teachings of the Buddha, where mindfulness comes from, the satipatthana, it's also about, it's always about internal mindfulness, external mindfulness, and both internal and external mindfulness at the same time. And so this dynamic practice, it's a beautiful word dynamic, and if you know me you know i like words and so i looked up dynamic and some of the the thesaurus for dynamic it also means energetic spirited lively vigorous vital diligent committed devoted passionate those are all great ways to practice or to understand your practice as being dynamic or vigorous or vital or committed or devoted practice or passionate practice because this is the deal meaning this is our life why not give ourselves to the truth and what it means to wake up individually and together and how can we support that and you know not everybody's a Buddhist, but it's so great to see in the news and and in you know on social media about what people do and In terms of racism, I saw that Miriam Webster, who those of you who are old enough remember when there were dictionaries that were books now it's all online, but there was you'd get a big book, a dictionary of all the words. And uh, Merriam-Webster, who is well-known dictionary, uh, they had to update its definition of racism because this 22-year-old black woman challenged them because they she read the the definition and it wasn't it wasn't accurate. It wasn't what she, it wasn't her reality, and so she, a 22-year-old black woman named Kennedy Mitchum Um, who said the dictionary definitely needed to be, to include systemic racism, which is such a key to this piece, is to see how racism is systematized, not just in slavery, which it was, but then in all these other ways since then, in terms of lynchings, and then Jim Crow, and then and neighborhoods, and then in terms of healthcare and schooling and, and et cetera, et cetera. It was, it was uh, made systemic so that you didn't, it didn't look like racism, but that black people and people of color had less, were given less, were acknowledged less, were, were discriminated against in an ongoing way because of the economics. And when I was a young man, I was involved in radical politics in the 60s, 1960s, against the Vietnam War and also against racism back then. And, um, and one of the things I always learned, I learned at a very young age, 18, that somebody told me in the radical political world, they said, follow the money, that's the key follow the money. If you want to know what's happening and why it's happening, look at the money. Where's the money going? Who's got the money? How does it make money? How does it support those with money? And so that's something that I, to this day, is, I think is true. Maybe I'm wrong. You tell me if I'm wrong, but follow the money and really see what happens see what you discover, see what you learn, see what you begin to uh, put together about how the world works. And so common sense, what does it mean to act from our common sense, from our, uh, to work with our anger, outrage, or perseverance, or determination about racism. And uh, this is, uh, I'm going to read something from a friend of mine, a very successful Black woman, really good person, uh, every which way that I know, really intelligent. And she wrote this recently because of what's happened. And she said, in my 41 years, I've come out as both a queer person and a survivor of sexual assault coming out is a powerful act it means that everyone who knows you knows something personally impacted you it changes people to know someone and enough and enough people enough changed people changes the world Right so I'm going to say it again, right? She came out as both a queer person, survivor of sexual assault and and it's she said it means everyone knows you, know something uh someone personally impacted you, and it changes people to know someone, and enough changed people changes the world, and it's something about why we want to be real together, all of us. We wanna learn how to be real together, how to speak together, how to communicate together, how to listen to one another so we hear one another, so we learn about the reality that different people have been through and we can talk about our own reality. So my friend, she continued, she said this morning, when I finally watched the video of George Floyd calling out for his mother with a white police officer's knee on his neck, I wondered if my cousin Brady called out for his mother before he died in police custody 20-some years ago. I know my cousin Andre did before he was shot and killed by police two years ago. Deadly police brutality in the Black community is the story of my family, she says, the backdrop of my life, and I'm coming out about it now and this is my aside, but she's a very successful person in the world, in the financial world, things like that. And she's coming out about this now, she says, however you know me as a friend, a community member, an advisor, a woman's circle sister, an industry colleague, a spiritual student, or a neighbor, understand you know a Black person whose life and family have been irrevocably harmed by police brutality. You know someone who relives personal trauma every time the police snuff out another beautiful Black life. Let that change you. So I was reflecting on this and I learned about Sojourner Truth, who was a Black woman during the time of slavery. She was an an American abolitionist and a woman's woman's rights activist. And she was born into slavery in New York, right? Because slavery was not just in the South originally but she escaped with her infant daughter to freedom in 1826. And after going to court, she recovered her son who had been kept by the slave owner in 1828. And she became the first black woman to win such a case against a white man. And she said this later in her life. She said, life is a hard battle anyway. If we laugh and sing a little as we fight the good fight of freedom, it makes it all go easier. I will not allow my life's light be determined by the darkness around me. And so please reflect upon your own uh, freedom, your own freedom and your own experience of bias, however you may have experienced it based on your race or your gender or your sexuality or your class or your age or your body or whatever it might be. But don't, don't just keep it far away. Let it come closer so it helps soften your heart so it can open and see feel, sense more fully the pain and trauma of racism and prejudice in whatever form you may see it. Hmm. And I think I'm going to stop there. Uh, you can always say more. It's, it's kind of a teacher illness is you can always say more, but I'm not going to say more. I have a few questions. Uh, I'm going to respond to them. And I would love to hear if you have any more comments or questions. It doesn't have to be a question. It could be, which is always great. Or if something doesn't sound right to you, tell me. And let me see if I can clarify or if I'm wrong, which is also possible. So I'm going to start with uh, the second question, then I'll come back to the first, which is from Monica in Oakland. She says the Dalai Lama starts most of his talks with something like we are all brothers and sisters and starts from a place of common humanity. How does Buddhism inform building community from a place of common humanity without bias? Great question. Um, How does Buddhism inform building community from a place of common humanity without bias? Well, the first thing that Buddhism does is say, look here as well as there. Don't just look there, but look here and look at one's own bias. Let's get real about it. Let's learn about it. Let's see how we can respond to it if we don't pretend there's no bias. And often white people pretend there's no bias or there's no racism or they're not a racist and they may not be uh, racist in their thoughts, but the buying into the systemic racism in the culture is a way of being racist or, or if utilizing the privilege that is part of a bias. And so one wants to start to look carefully. I'm saying this to you, Monica, look carefully at what's here. I don't know if you're white or a person of color, but, um, but right here, I want to see my bias. And it's painful to see it for me because, of course, I think I'm a good person and I'm not prejudiced. And then, and then I see it and it's like, oh, and it's really like, oh, shit. And then, and then I can start to work with it. Then I can start to let go of it. Then I can start to be humble, which is one of the important things that the Dalai Lama knows a lot about, right? Because Monica started her question about the Dalai Lama saying about we're all brothers and sisters because it's true. And the Dalai Lama has been through a lot of prejudice and a lot of um, bias because he's Tibetan and 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 he's lost his whole country and his people and and um and so it's and and he's he's how do i want to say it he's um it's not that he hasn't gotten angry about what happens but he doesn't blame the human beings who did it he blames the system that did it right the systemic uh, the system of the Chinese government and their ignorance, and of course, part of his practice is to have compassion for everybody for their ignorance and so and so here, especially in the West and in Spirit Rock. I mean, the first thing is to be aware of your bias, to see it and to start to investigate it. And investigation is the second factor of awakening. And it's right next to mindfulness. You want to be mindful and you want to investigate instead of thinking, oh, we're all good or we're all right, or I'm never this. No, see what's true and then start to investigate that and then see what are the skillful means that are available to start to, overcome one's bias, one's prejudice, and so we can really build a community. And that means getting together with people like white people, Like if you now, if you're part of my group here in the city, San Francisco Insight, tomorrow, you can go to sanfranciscoinsight.org. Tomorrow, I believe there's a white awake group starting for the first time tomorrow. And if you're white, you can join it because it's all online. And, um, And that's an important way to start to build community from what's here and then start to include everybody without bias. It's by learning about bias that we can become free of it. And then let me go to the first question, which was asked after the meditation from, um, uh, which was from Gabe who said, what are you personally thinking or saying to yourself in those long gaps of, of meditation and breathing? Uh, Well, it depends on the, on the gap, right? Some gaps, hopefully I'm not thinking about anything. I'm just being with the breath. And sometimes I'm thinking, okay, how's it going? What's the time? Oh, breathe again, get into my body. I'll even tell myself to stay present, relax, things like that. One of my, one of my basic meditation instructions to Eugene is relax just relax right here and be with what's here and that's it and so that's what i'm doing also when i'm not speak when i'm speaking especially in the um uh, when I'm teaching like this, I want to give you the instruction. I want you to work with it, and then I want to add to it. And so I do that slowly. I don't want to do that in, in two minutes and then I'm done talking. I generally do that over five, ten minutes or so, maybe twelve minutes, and then I'll and then I leave a longer space for for silence and for your practicing with whatever's been said. And here's another question. Thank you for the questions. I'm totally glad you're asking questions because you know we end when the questions end, basically. I, at least I think we'll end because I never know what's actually gonna happen. Sometimes I start talking about something else. Um, and so Natalie asks, if now, is the entry point. What do we do when now is a moment of intense fear or triggered trauma coming back? Great question. How do how can we be here and embodied without being drawn back into what has been triggered in the body and mind? Great. Thank you, Natalie. Very important question, really important. And it's great to ask it because um, there's different instructions we, we all have different kinds of uh, trauma, right? But some people, the trauma, right, really gets triggered and the trauma comes back. And we don't, that's not skillful practice. So the now, if it's a moment of intense fear, then you can either be with the fear, if that works, or if you can't, and be aware that it's fear, It's not necessarily true, but it's fear. And of course, the mind's thinking it's true and the body feels like it's true. And it's like this, like I'm doing, it's shaking. You know, it's like, I think, oh shit, what the hell's going to happen now? And actually for me, mostly the fear is in my ideas, beliefs, and sometimes memories, right? But it's just fear. And fear is a normal thing for for any you for human beings, but also for any animal. That's an animal instinct. We have fear when there's danger. Fear, fear gets us away, you know. And of course, the fear is uh, um, uh, flight, f- uh, fl- flee. F- I can't remember. There's a few of them. Um, um, flee or withdraw or freeze, One, some of those, something like that. And and of course, that can happen. And how do we, she says, how do we be here, wait, wait, uh, how do we be here and embodied without bring, being drawn back into what has been triggered in the body-mind? Well, that's that's a skillful part of practice. If you have the kind of trauma that is triggered by being in your body, find some part of your body that you can be in, even if you're. it's your toes, just feel your toes. Often that's a very neutral place or your feet can be very neutral or your arms or your legs, generally not the center of the torso. That's one of the more charged areas of the body, right? The torso and the head. And so, sense sense whatever is neutral to help bring balance right and that really helps that really can help and so you have to navigate you have to be an artist with practice practice is an art and part of the art of practice is to work with whatever we have here right which we all have our fear or discomfort or angst or pain or trauma and then Keep learning how to work with it from uh, from the traditional teachings, but also from outside of the traditional teachings, because the Buddha didn't talk about trauma exactly in his day and age. And so now we know a lot more. and We keep learning more about trauma. So please use. The skillful means that are in Buddhism and also outside of Buddhism in order to stay present in the moment. And being present in the moment sometimes means going away from what's here until there's enough balance so you can go back. But you only go back by putting your big toe in. Don't put everything in at once. I hope that's helpful. Um, Okay, another question. Lisa says, a couple of decades ago, I learned the paradigm of the two truths from you, and it has helped me find understanding and orient in my personal life. It has been helpful to others whom I've shared it with over the years. Can you speak to how you are currently thinking about the two truths in in our present era? Uh, Sure. Uh, Two truths are uh, very simple. For those of you who don't know, it's not the four noble truths, right? Which are suffering, cause of suffering, end of suffering, path to lead to the end of suffering. That's the core of Buddhism. But the two truths are a teaching. It's more a Mahayana teaching um, that is about relative truth and ultimate truth. And relative truth is the truth of, okay, we're sitting here right now and I'm talking to you and you're listening and you're liking or not liking and I'm feeling good or not good about what I'm saying and my talk, how it's going. And, you know, that's all relative truth happening, right? Um, uh, ultimate truth is oh, there's no me here and there's no you here. And it's all just reality unfolding on its own moment by moment by moment. That's one way to talk about ultimate truth, right? And here's the interesting piece, which I learned. And so when I was young, all I was, I wasn't into relative truth, dealing with what's happening with me personally or dealing with the world. I didn't care about that after a while. All I wanted was ultimate truth, freedom right? That's what ultimate truth is about. It's freedom. It's about the ultimate reality or, or learning the absolute or the depth of reality. What's actually called in Buddhism is the deathless and because uh, it's it's about ha- having never been born and never dying, right? Which is part of the ultimate truth. And so I was only interested in the ultimate truth. And at some point i learned about the two truths and especially in the Zen tradition, I learned about it. Uh, They said, oh, there's relative truth. There's ultimate truth. And they said a great thing because I was so prejudiced, biased towards ultimate truth. They said there's relative truth, ultimate truth. And then, uh, and they're equally true. They're equally true. They're both true. And for me, that's good Dharma. Like that's real Dharma. And so, and that's still true right now. Lisa asked me about how am I thinking about the two truths in the present era? It's true. They're both true. The stuff that's happening, COVID-19, 400 years of racism maybe coming to some kind of tipping point. That's all true. And that's good. Totally good. And that's not the end of what's true. There are different levels of reality. And I believe that you all have an intuition for the ultimate truth, even if you don't know it directly, experientially. There's still an intu- intuition oh, that there's something more to who and what we are than just what we know in relative truth, which has to do with... with um, um, Uh, relative truth, which has to do with just the ordinary stuff of life, even the unordinary ordinariness of something like COVID-19 or racism. Because of course, in some form, these things have, have been going on since people have been on the earth this isn't the only pandemic that happened. Many of you know, I'm sure that a hundred years ago, there was a huge pandemic here in the United States. Maybe, I don't know, maybe around the world, you know, which a lot of people, you know, thousands and thousands of people died from the, from the uh, flu epidemic back then, right. In the twenties or something early twenties, I believe. And, um, and then the the um, um, the ultimate truth, ultimate reality is right here. and it's something we intuit. We know there's something more to who and what we are, and we all want to discover it. And it's part of what what um, we seek by coming to Buddhism or any spiritual practice. We're looking to discover the reality of what's here. And whether we call it true nature or Buddha nature or uh, the deathless or awakening or whether we call it God or or the divine or the sacred, we're all seeking something we know is actually right here. It's not separate from what relative reality. And this is what's beautiful about their both true relative and ultimate They're like this. They're not one here and one there. It's not relative here, ultimate here. No, they're woven together. And we're a manifestation of the ultimate in our relative form, you know, of being Eugene or whoever you are, you know, Lisa. Hmm. Okay, one more question. And again, I'm open to a few more. This is from uh, uh, an unmuted by mistake person somehow. Okay, and this is a compilation of questions from participants. What do we do when our first response to the issues of racism in white culture is to form a book study group? what next. Uh, That's part of your practice to discover what next. I don't have a list of do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but do it. Just do it. Read your book. And get close to it, and stay embodied while you're reading it, and see what happens to your heart and mind as you really learn about racism and take it in as a re- as a reality. And when you you know, and and when you learn about white culture and the whole mythology that's been created about whiteness, because it create which created the mythology of blackness, um, you know then see what happens. And that's how you learn. There's not a prescription, do ABC. The way we wake up is one step at a time and learning, discovering, exploring reality one step at a time and keep moving. Don't go backward, keep going forward. And if you don't know what to do, find other white people to talk to who may know what to do, who may know more than you. And that, and then work with them, get in a group with them, ask them for help, and keep looking very carefully at the world and your heart, and mind, and how you might react to the world as opposed to how you might respond to the world. Right? Can we? can we respond to the truth and not just react to the truth? Okay, another question. Patricia asks, how do I deal with my constant anger about how others are putting us all in danger by not taking COVID-19 seriously and others who are trying to tear our country apart politically and racially? Yeah, great question. Be aware of your anger. Don't get rid of it. Feel it. Sense it. Don't just stay in your thoughts about it. Feel the energy, the aliveness that is in anger because it's real and it can be helpful. There's a word in Buddhism I like, vajra, sword-like. It brings a sword-like energy that can cut through the bullshit and that will help you begin to understand how to deal both with your anger and the people you're talking about who don't take COVID-19 seriously and the others who are trying to tear our country apart politically, racially. So here for myself, I'll tell you personally, I have a hard time with the COVID-19 thing. I have a hard time not saying something to everybody who walks by me and is not wearing a mask. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? That's what Eugene thinks. That's what goes through my mind. Don't you get this? You know, it's you. If you wear the mask, you're actually protecting me as well as protecting yourself. Uh, and yet, it's not skillful to say that to everybody who's walking by me. <laughs> uh, that could cause some trouble. And and but I get tempted. But I do keep um, uh, being very diligent about my own practice and supporting everybody I know to be really diligent. All my friends, family, community, I want them to, I don't hold back with them. And then then try to see what else might work with people who are not taking it seriously. And then the second piece is a really deep question. How do we deal with others who are trying to tear our country apart politically and racially? So this is where practice is just key. Because there's a lot of people in politics I don't like, right? And I think they're totally ignorant. And I think I'm right. I actually, I think they are really ignorant. But seeing the ignorance helps bring my compassion forward. Because they don't know how ignorant they are. And they do. They act horribly about in politically and racially and so there are different levels of response one is first of all there's some compassion actually for all of them because it it all comes out of ignorance race racism comes out of ignorance politically being uh, you know Tearing the country apart, you know, it's all this side, you know, the right or the left or the Democrats or Republicans or whatever the division is. It's the same nonsense. It's ignorance at work. And so I'm seeing ignorance, which allows my heart to come forward. But my heart coming forward is not just uh, passivity. It means I see the ignorance, I have compassion for the people, and I also know something about a courageous heart. And you know, the word courage comes from heart in French. It's about being fierce sometimes. And so it means standing up and doing our part. So I've been doing my little bit politically, wherever I can, to change the country politically and to change the government in this next election. And I'm Going to continue to do things both verbally, physically, in you know, going out and doing marches if that's what's needed, but also financially. If I can make an offering or donation to the right place to help get stuff to happen, I'm going to do it. And so I don't want to lose my presence. That's where that's where um, practice is so important for dealing with this kind of dukkha right? This kind of, uh, you know, if you don't know, dukkha is the Pali word for his suffering. That we want to stay present here in the moment, in each moment, because we're right here, right now. And this is where we can respond from. This is how we can work with our anger. Even if, it, if it's constant, see how constant it is. If you get closer to it, you'll notice your anger fluctuates and it changes. And even your body's response to the anger uh, changes. And and, uh, it's not one thing. And so watch out for that one thing. Okay, last question by an anonymous practitioner who said, when you clasp your hands and bow, what does that represent to you, to me? And what is it saying to us? Well, you have to tell me what it's saying to you because you're the only one who can interpret what it's saying to you. I can't interpret your reality in that way. I could guess, or I could tell you what I hope it it represents, but I don't know what it repre- what it's saying to you. But when I do this, it's a bow, and it's a little bit of a... Uh, it's different at different times. Like at the end of the sitting, I always do that. And in my heart and mind, I always do a little, oh, may this for, be for the benefit of all. May this sitting have been for the benefit of all. And the all includes you, even the anonymous practitioner who asks this, right? And so the, the, um, the bow is a way to relate and to acknowledge my humility and my wish that practice be for the, for the good of all people. And that's a good question because we're going to end with a little uh, of that acknowledgement. We do a little sharing of merit at the end, and you could put your hands together if you would like, or you don't have to. And it's really the sharing of merit is to take a moment to reflect each of you about our good fortune that we have that we could be here and be together tonight that even in the midst of COVID 19 we have this strange technology uh, where we can get together and study the dharma and study ourselves and wake up together and appreciating that good fortune that blessing and Wishing it to go out in every direction. May the good fortune go out in every world, in every realm, in this world and in every world. And sending our good wishes with that wish. May all people, may all beings, all people and beyond people, may all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, free from dukkha, free from misunderstanding, free from racism, free from bias, free from ignorance. May all beings wake up and discover their true nature, their Buddha nature. May we wake up together. May all beings be free. Thank you everybody, may all be well, take good care. I'll see you somewhere, okay. Okay, awesome, very cool. Thank you so much, Eugene. Yeah, is that okay? Okay, good. There was a lot there. That was (laughs) I know. Believe me, and I I had a whole page of stuff I didn't even speak about. Wow. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.